Hi, Lauren here. I just wanted to take this opportunity to let you know about a project almost as near and dear to my heart as ChangeLab. It's my new book, Make to Know, which is coming out in October and draws from many of the insights that have emerged from my ChangeLab interviews. Make to Know is based on hundreds of hours of conversations with artists and designers who insist that creativity isn't necessarily a vision thing. Rather, it's a process of braving the unknown en route to discoveries that come from making itself. For fans of the podcast, the book offers the perfect complement to my interviews for Change Lab, exploring the transformative moments that comprise a creative life. Make to Know will be available for purchase online and in your favorite bookstores starting in early October. I look forward to continuing our exploration of the lives of people who makes stuff and the beauty that comes through it all. The whole point about Whale 52, he can't understand anyone, no one can understand him, but he keeps singing. And that's the point about art. There may be a pandemic, there may be a lockdown, but you have to keep singing. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. For Diana Thader, making art is like oxygen. It sustains and nourishes her. And when her access to it is suddenly limited, as it was early on in the pandemic, she'll figure out a way to create her art by any means necessary. Her latest exhibition, Yes, There Will Be Singing, is the captivating result of an extraordinary pandemic pivot. She conceived the idea for the sound-based installation when her in-person show was cancelled. But what's most ingenious about this immersive work is not its format, but rather its remarkable subject, Whale 52, who is deaf and sings into a world of complete darkness and silence. If there's a more perfect metaphor for resilience in the face of the isolation we've all just experienced, I can't think of one. Diana is an Art Center alum and distinguished professor who I interviewed at length a while back for my new book, Make to Know, which investigates the revelatory nature of the creative process. Our first conversation was so fruitful and illuminating, I knew she'd make the perfect guest to kick off this season of Change Lab, which expands upon the book's themes. She did not disappoint. This time we spoke about the sweep of her body of work, the role of improvisation in her filming process, and her enduring commitment to risking life and limb to create stunning installations. True to form, she didn't miss a beat. With an artwork, you need something to draw people in, she told me in no uncertain terms. When you get them there, I want to say, Here's a world worth saving. Please enjoy my conversation with Diana Thader. 
Welcome to Change Lab, Diana. It's wonderful to have you here, and I'm so excited about the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you, Lauren. I'm thrilled and excited to be in your wonderful new book and happy to talk about it with you today. First, let's just introduce you to the listeners. Maybe just if you could take a couple of minutes to talk about your work or how you talk about your work and some of the pressing questions and issues that compel you. Sure. I have been working for 30 years in film and video installation primarily. I make single channel work, but mostly I work in large scale installation, usually takes place in large institutions. I've done shows at MoMA, LACMA, at the Guggenheim, etc. My work focuses on the human relationship to nature and how that is manifested in our behavior, but also in our treatment of animals and the natural world. So I travel around the world documenting, filming, videotaping endangered species and also animals with whom human beings have constructed complex relationships. I'm very interested in the environment, environmental issues, and climate change issues, but mostly I'm interested in species extinction and the preservation of the natural world. I also do activist work. I've worked for Save Japan Dolphins and for Earth Island Institute. And for one voice, I've made eight documentaries for the Dolphin Project about the abuse of dolphins. So that's kind of a round sort of view of what I do. Beautiful. And there's a lot there that I want to probe as we go on. Let's focus on the work a little bit. And actually, I want to you know, now go all the way to really the more recent work to start getting into this issue of our experience with nature and how it's explored in your work. And to start from your 11 new works on video that you created during the pandemic from California of your garden and your exploration of that world. And maybe if you could just take a couple of minutes, I'm going to do this a couple of times throughout our conversation, to describe the work to our listeners, and then we can get into some of the questions and issues that I think are really interesting that come from that beautiful piece of yours, or 11 pieces, really. When the pandemic began, I didn't quite know what to do with myself. And I knew that if I didn't work, I would become deeply depressed. And so I immediately started working. Like we were in lockdown, I think it was March 14 or 15. And like March 17, I pulled out all of my cameras. I have a lot of old cameras, Super 8, 16. I have double Super 8 and I have lots of video cameras. So I pulled out all my old film out of the refrigerator, all the stock, you know, that was out of date. (laughs) And I loaded my cameras (laughs) and I decided I would test them just to see how they're doing, how they work, you know. And so I put the film in and once a week I went into my garden because I have a beautiful garden. My husband has a green thumb and he is an amazing gardener. So once a week I went into the garden and filmed one roll of film. Then I developed it by mail. <laughs> and Oh wow. Yeah, I sent it in to be developed and scanned, and then it came back and I edited it. And I was testing all the functions on all of my cameras. So the 11 pieces that I made are between a minute and two minutes long. And they're all sort of views of the garden. And some are done in time lapse uh, video. Some are done in 16 millimeter film, some in Super 8, etc. So together, these 11 
videos or little films make up kind of picture of my summer last year, but also it relates to my work with gardens because I'm interested in all sorts of relationships that we've made with the natural world, including sculpting gardens. So let's go a little deeper into, because I'm really interested in the aspects of the work and how it mediates our experience with nature. You know, once upon a time before this book that's coming out now, I did a book on Shakespeare on film. And what I was interested in was how the camera takes us through a special journey through those plays that you could never really realize in live performance or in reading them. And it was an exploration of how technology gave us insight that we could have never acquired before. And it kind of mediated our experience of those texts in really interesting ways. And I see some similarities with what I think you might be doing with nature and specifically with these 11 works, this kind of special journey you take us through as you play with light and speed and perspective and time. And then, of course, there's the Bersenbrugge poem, Hello, the Roses, that you weave in, which is also a way that mediates our experience. Both these things seem to direct and challenge our attention. And I wonder if you could talk to me in that garden. Yes. I mean, when I started making them, I wanted to make each one differently. So I did time lapses over the course of 10 hours or eight hours, and I did double exposures in film. I played with my cameras. And I right. played with the technology and in order to see how I could sculpt and reframe time. So how can I put a walk through my garden together in one minute and not make you feel like you've missed something, you know? So I made 11 and each one is focused. And the great thing about technology is that it can allow us to observe something for a long time or for a longer time than we might in the world. And it can show us multiple perspectives, which we can't get in the world with our sort of individual subjectivity, right? Right, exactly. So right. multiple perspectives right. and compressed time, these things make you think about time and space and the filmic, et cetera, and how film constructs alternative views of the world for you. And technology, you know, historically, we know the natural world in the 20th century through technology. You know, I mean, we know it through National Geographic and photography and the Smithsonian Magazine or whatever, you know. We know it through technology, and I'm interested in exploring how we know what we know and how the technology right. reflects that. Right, right, exactly. And that's why it sort of echoed this kind of exploration I did with Shakespeare too, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it gave us a technology view. We were able to experience the place in a radically different way than we could live because the technology, just something as simple as the close-up or editing or whatever, that gives us a very different relationship to the plays then. Sure. It gives you a different relationship to characters, to time, you know, to duration, to space. It changes the way we see things and we can focus it. You know, it's important working with wild animals that we understand that knowledge is acquired literally only through observation, without touching them, without hurting them, without removing them from their environment. And so this technology that I use, film and video, we can look at 
a member of an endangered species for a nice long time and spend time with this being, which we would never be able to do. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, are you implicating humanity in that process? Meaning, are you trying to reflect back on how we frame or how we perceive or how we label nature, animals, as you're showing them? Do you know what I'm asking? Yes, I do. I do. With an artwork, you need something that draws people in, whether that's beauty, whether that's humor, whether that's complexity. We need something to draw people in. And then when you get them there, when you get them into looking at the work, then you can say something to them when they are open. And the thing I don't want to say is it's all your fault. The thing I want to say is, you know, here's a world worth saving. We can save it for many reasons, you know, uh, environmental reasons, uh, the questions of the existence of humanity. But we could also save it because it's beautiful and it's wondrous. Mm -hmm. And that's really what I'm trying to talk about. Right. It's a question of changing the way you see the world. And that's what I think art, great, great art, good art aspires to do is somehow change the way we see the world and give us insight into something we didn't have insight into. Couldn't agree more, which is exactly why I asked you that question about technology and even the poem, too. I think, you know, the relationships that are created allow for that kind of thing to happen. And the thing the thing I love about the poem is that it it stops everything and we look at the roses or we think the roses. And it's not a romantic poem. It's very sort of structural. It's really built in a way. And I love the way that poem is built. And it doesn't have this kind of reduction to the romance or the symbolism of flowers. It's about the experience. And that's what my work Mm -hmm. is about. It's about experiencing the image of another, the representation of another. Another way in which I think I find great fascination with your work is with Brecht. And not only the fact that you use him for Yes, There Will Be Singing, which I want to get to in a minute, but You know, Brecht is somebody I've studied a lot in my life. And the two of you have a lot of really interesting similarities. I think you depart at a certain kind of point, but it goes to exactly what we were saying. I mean, if you compare your work to Brecht and his theater, his interest is to make everything apparent. It's what he called the alienation effect, right? That the show and the structure and the architecture and the exit signs and the theater lights themselves, even the acting style, this Brechtian acting style, was to sort of draw attention to the process itself, draw attention to what's going on. Because, and I've heard you say this before too, he doesn't want the spectator to be lulled into the illusion of theater. He wants the theater to wake them up and to see a certain level of injustice. Another way, which is interesting too, which I thought was fun, was you know his early plays are his didactic plays. They're known as his didactic plays, and later plays are explorations of very different kinds of questions and issues. And you too have talked about your early work as didactic, and that later on you've moved into a different kind of structure. But here's where you depart, and I'm just interested in your response to this. Mm-hmm. Brecht wants the spectator, the viewer, to wake up but to be analytical and intellectual about defining the problem, then leaving the theater and making the world a better place, right? 
I think what you want to do, you too want to use all these different artifacts and all these different ways of presenting to wake up the viewer, but to be sympathetic as opposed necessarily to intellectual and analytical. And I wondered what you thought about all of that in that departure. Sure. I mean, you know, the V effect was something, uh, of course, I learned about in graduate school. It's one of the favorite grad school topics from when I was in school was Brecht and the V effect. Mm -hmm. And it resonates in visual art because filmic artists like Hollis Frampton, for example, made what we call structuralist film. But what it really is, is a kind of exposure of the entire apparatus and the implications of that apparatus. And that's a kind right, of Brechtian right. move. And I took that and used it in my own work. So everything is exposed. You see the crew, you see the cameras, you see everything. You see me interacting with wild animals and them interacting with my crew, etc. And you see my guides and activists and conservationists working. And all of that is exposed because it all feeds into the meaning of the work. That this is not only about encountering, let's say, a rhino in my recent work, As Radical as Reality. It's not just in, about encountering the rhino. It's about encountering the relationship around the rhino. So the rhino I filmed was the last northern white rhino in the world. Uh, sorry, the last male northern white rhino in the world. Right. And he's protected by guards 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because he's a very precious, precious animal who actually died in 2018. But you see all the apparatus that surrounds him to keep him safe, just to keep him safe. There are rangers, there are men with AK-47s who walk next to him as he roams the bush, you know? And so you see all the apparatus with which we surround nature. And now we have to surround it with rangers with guns to protect it. So exposing all of that exposes the kind of apparatus of the human nature relationship. Yeah. That the thing I'm interested in turning inside out and in having you walk away and think differently about the world and possibly, yes, act differently in the world. You resist narrative, oh, is that right? for the most part, yes, I do. <laughs> and you resist narrative for what reason? Because narrative is how people know cinema for the most part. And I never believed that time-based media is inherently narrative. People use it for storytelling because it's linear, right? And it takes time, it's durational. But I'm not interested in storytelling. I'm not interested in telling you the sad story of the rhino. I'm interested in you engaging with the image, with the representation, but also with the space you're in. I don't want people to get lost in a narrative. This is also why my work is silent, because sound leads viewers. That's how sound works. It tells you how to feel 
I don't want to tell people what mm-hmm. they should do and what kind of state they should be in. And I don't want to manipulate them through the use of dialogue or speech or music. I want quiet and I want time to play out before you in real space so that you're conscious of it. This is also about the apparatus, is for you to be conscious when you're in the space that this is not magic. So all of my equipment is exposed. There's wires running everywhere. It's not an impediment to the sublime or to creating something beautiful or magical. No, not at all. It's not an impediment. It makes that happen. And the fact that it happens despite the presence of all that technology is something we should think about. That's modernity. That's the contemporary world. Right. And again, it echoes beautifully with the alienation (laughs) effect and Breath's desire to show all aspects of the working theater and the functioning theater as the play is going on. I love Uh, that. Yeah. (laughs) So let's talk about that piece. Yes, there will be singing. Uh This piece, again, you made during the pandemic online. Anybody can see it anywhere, which is great. So again, let's describe the piece and and then get into some of the issues that you are unveiling as you create. Sure. Yes, there will be singing is a piece that I made in 2020 during the pandemic. And what had happened is that I was supposed to have a show at my gallery in September, which is an important thing, you know, for an artist, a gallery show is how we make a living, right? And my show got canceled, of course, because my gallery closed. But as I said before, I need to work. I have to work. If I don't work, I don't know what to do with myself. So I asked them if we could make a live 24-7 piece online that people could access at any time, and it would be happening live somewhere in the world, but you wouldn't know where. It would just be a room, an anonymous room somewhere with an installation in it. And surveillance cameras in the room filming the empty room with the installation. My gallerist in New York, just like he loved it, he loved it. So he said, let's do it. So we created a website for the piece and you can go in and on there, or you could go on there while it was up. It was up for six weeks. You could go on and watch it live. It's called Yes, There Will Be Singing. And the key to it is a deaf blue whale who's named by scientists Whale 52 because he sings at 52 hertz. And by the way, do we know for sure that he's deaf? No, they don't know for sure that he's deaf. They think he might be a hybrid whale who sings incorrectly. He could be deaf. Uh Uh-huh, I see. His hearing could have been affected by Navy sonar, which is highly likely Uh since whales are being deafened by sonar. So the piece focuses on the song of Whale 52. The room is filled with sound and color, but no art. (laughs) No paintings, no sculptures, no nothing. Just cameras, speakers, and lights. So you could tune in at any time and listen to the whales singing and look at the empty room filled with changing colored light.
The point was being isolated, being alone in the world. And people often talk about the tragedy of the isolation of this whale because whales are social creatures. They speak to one another in a very complex language. So this whale is unable to speak to his peers, his family, he's unable to mate, etc. So there's the tragedy of this whale who can't speak to others of his kind. And so I wanted to, to foreground this. And Whale 52 has also never been seen. He's only been recorded mm-hmm. with hydrophones by uh, researchers. So there was no video in the show, but the show itself was transmitted by surveillance cameras online. So there was a video aspect, a screen. Yes. But it was all about absence. So you can hear the whales, you can see the changing colors in an empty room. And it's just all about this disappearance. And is is Whale 52 the lower bass line that you hear? Is that Yes. Whale 52 is is the bass. It's the hum throughout the piece. Mm-hmm. And then what I did was I used the songs of humpback whales as the melody. Because one of the ways that we learned as much as we know about whale communication and whale song is from research that was done in the 60s. A researcher produced an album called Songs of the Humpback Whale. I believe it was 68 or 69 it came out. And it brought the song of whales to human beings. Like all of a sudden we found that whales could sing. And they sent a recording of a humpback whale up on Voyager, you know, the- Right, the golden record, yeah. They have the golden record and they have whale songs on the golden record. And so I put together Whale 52 and humpback whales for a bass and a melody and one whale who sings alone, and other whales who are singing to one another and contrasting that and making a kind of sound composition out of it. It is so unbelievably gorgeous and moving. I mean, I wept as I experienced it. It was incredible. And you know, to anybody listening to this podcast, drop everything and if you haven't <laughs> if you haven't experienced yet and go to see this. Do you have any particular reflection on the fact that this was a sound-focused piece? You were just reflecting on how you want things to be quiet. Mm-hmm. You've flipped it over now. I mean, as you say, the visual's there, but we're led by the sound. Right. And I'm just interested in your reflections on that change for you. Oh, sure. That's huge for me because I very rarely work with sound because, you know, I grew up going to the museum. I went to museums in New York from when I was a child. It was always my birthday present. I would get to go to the Met or something. And I loved how quiet it was back then before it went crazy with tourists. And you could be in alone in a room with a Velasquez in quiet and just contemplate and think and look and enjoy. And so I always wanted my work to be silent. And as I said, I didn't want to lead people emotionally or take them out of themselves. I want you to be fully present when you experience the work. Now, a couple of pieces I've made with sound, but this is the first major work I've made with sound. And I composed the whole thing myself. 
And it seemed to me that with a creature who's never been seen and who sings, that this was the only way to do it. And it was a big challenge for me. But like I said, it was the pandemic and I was bored and I needed a challenge. And if I didn't have a challenge, I was just going to get depressed. So that was my challenge. Mm -hmm. Let's go a little deeper into the musicality of... Yes, there will be singing. It's not just the whale sounds, but there's a musicality to your editing, to the rhythm, the relationship of the oral and the and the visual and the rhythms that you create. And again, we see human rhythms really and in relationship with whale sounds, which I think is pretty powerful. And I'm curious about that, if you might reflect on that a little bit. Yeah. In my work, I've always had this idea in video, and this is why my work is not narrative is that let's say paint and canvas and brushes are the stuff of painting. Cameras and film and video are the stuff of time-based media, time-based image making. That is mechanical. Natural time and the times of nature. You know, the many kinds of time. A rhino's time is different from your time. An elephant's time is different from a rhino's time. Each animal belongs to a world, belongs to an ecosystem, but they live time differently. Elephants live to be 70. Fruit flies live three days, right? So there's these questions about what we absorb and what we understand in time. The question of mechanical time in this piece. Now, what happens is the cameras switch every two seconds. So it's two seconds, two seconds, two seconds, two seconds. The colors are changing every 30 seconds. So everything is rolling through one another. The idea was to have this mechanical rhythm of the cameras, which are technology, set up against the flow and the melodic sound of the whales. So you have one thing that flows, and then you have another thing that keeps mechanical time. So you have two kinds of time present in the work always. Whale time, camera time. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. I certainly do. It's fa- And it's fabulous. And it, that tension and that relationship, uh, again, gives a musicality and a sense of movement to the work. That is part of why I think I was so moved by it, you know? Yeah, I got that, you know, I got that response from a lot of people and I was very happy. People told me they left it on all day long and just listened as they went about their business. And other people told me that it made them tear up. And I actually wanted that, that response. It was something like it made me tear up, you know, the, the, just the thought of this whale and and our own isolation, the space we were in. Right. And all with the that, that amazing Brecht piece, that little poem just hovering there of, yes, there will be singing about the dark times. And again, just knowing Brecht and about, I mean, the, the link of creativity to darkness, to political injustice, to suffering was such an important relationship for him. And here's this whale, never seen, never heard. Mm-hmm isolated alone and suffering you know in isolation and suffering and yet expressing nonetheless you know the whole point about whale 52 he can't understand anyone no one can understand him but he keeps singing right and that's the point about art there may be a pandemic there may be a lockdown but you have to keep singing 
Exactly. It may be dark. Amen. I wanted to get into, in this next little bit of our conversation, to some of the things that we talked about when I interviewed you for the book. And as you know, I was so compelled by how carefully prepared you were, but it was a preparation for a kind of spontaneity or improvisation. And I loved that kind of relationship between the deep preparation and your readiness to be able to respond to the moment. So let's go back to As Radical as Reality, your work with Sudan, and maybe ask you just to, we, we talked a little bit about it earlier. It was the last male northern rhino who has since died. And I guess I, I'd like to talk a little bit about the filming process and what happened when you were on site. And then I want to get into the installation a little bit because I love that story. Yeah, I mean, Lauren, what I really liked in your book was this connection between improvisation and production. And where does planning, research, and production lie? And where does improvisation enter? Right. And in a way, you know, for me, improvisation is very, very, very important because you never know what an animal is going to do. You know, I was filming a bull elephant who charged me. And, you know, I've been bitten by scorpions, all kinds of like, crazy crap has happened to me in, in the wild. <laughs> and um, with Sudan, you see, what I have to do is when I film a wild animal, you don't know what they're going to do. So what I do is design a camera setup based on my research. So I knew about Sudan. I looked at images. I read everything. I talked to people about him who knew about him. And I constructed a kind of setup, a kind of camera setup that I would use with him. And it wouldn't matter what he did. That's the whole point is I have to create, when I shoot, I have to make a sort of camera choreography looking forward to the installation, right? I have to think about the installation and the animal and the camera choreography all at the same time. So since you never know what an animal is going to do, you have to set up in a way that you can capture things that you didn't know would happen. So this is this question of the animal is the improvisation. Exactly. Right. You know, and most of the time animals eat and sleep and play with their babies, you know, like elephants, rhinos. This is what they do. So it's often very boring footage, you know, and in the piece about Sudan, as radical as reality, you watch this big, beautiful, nearly prehistoric creature just grazing. So I made this camera setup. I wanted to film him simultaneously at sunset and sunrise. So because I wanted to, for the installation, I wanted the sun to forever be setting upon this rhino, because he's the last one. I wanted it to be this contemplation of endings, of what endings mean. And so, yeah, the improvisation, but also this other thing you talk about in your book, which is the most important thing, the key, and that's curiosity. And that's ultimately why you can't try to direct a wild animal. 
because you have to be open. You have to be curious. You have to wonder what he's going to do, you know? And if memory serves me right, you had planned to shoot Sudan at sunset, but when you were there, you decided to actually experiment with what the light would be for sunrise exactly. at the same time, Exactly, because I wanted the yeah. sun rising and setting over him. So in the installation, you have two screens at right angles to one another, and on one, the sun is rising, and on one, the sun is setting, and the rhino is in the middle. And can you talk to us a little bit about that and the story of the installation and your experimentation with that and how you found your way to this notion of folded space, which is so beautiful? Oh my God, it was so hard. This was the most difficult installation I've ever done because I had never made screens before. So I designed these screens because I wanted, what I wanted to happen is that I wanted sunrise and sunset to become indistinguishable from one another. And for this time to wrap and fold around the rhino. So as you walk around this, the screen is set up like an X and there are two projections that intersect. So you see the rhino simultaneously at sunrise and at sunset. The sun sets behind him on one screen, and on the other, it rises behind him. And there's sort of mythic quality to it, mm. you know, that I wanted it to have. But I also wanted the rhino to be as big as a rhino is. And I wanted you to move and be within the piece while thinking about it, you know? Yeah, totally. And I guess the question then becomes, because this was so wonderful in our, our first conversation about the kind of making and knowing relationship, how you experimented, how you moved things around, how the installation became this kind of wonderful playground for you to engage, to make, to move, to change, to feel frustration that this wasn't working, to uh, flip yeah. it around, to all the things until you knew what it was that you needed to create. Right, exactly. And it's, it's some artists, artists always say, you know, or some artists say like, they never know when it's done. Like, is it done? You know, when am I done? When do I stop touching this thing and let it go out into the world? And that was the question with this piece. Like, what would make it done? Like, I always know when I'm finished with a work, you know, I'm ready to install, I install it and, and that's it, that's the piece. And this piece, I didn't know what it was gonna look like. I just kept thinking about folding time and how, what does that look like, you know? So there were all mm -hmm. these questions about what an abstraction could look like in space. And that's my interest in video is this kind of abstraction of time. You know, film and video, you know, painting is representation of something, even if it's expressionism, even if it's abstract, it's a kind of representation. Film and video are a representation of time. They're time-based media. So they're pictures of time. So making something abstract is denying narrative time or, or an alternative or, a, you know, another way of working. So that gets back to this question of narrative as, as well. You know, right. the story is the story of you and the installation with the rhino and the sun setting on both of you. 
Right. And I love how in so much of your work, you actually, you break the rectangle, right? And you project onto walls and you create different kinds of shapes, mm -hmm. right? And really in the installation of this particular piece too, you made sure that all of that was split and cut. And we were, you know, again, in a very Brechtian kind of way, aware of the structure of the architecture of the piece, even as we experienced exactly. the image. And it's not, like I said, it's not an impediment. It's part and parcel of it. It's the structure is what makes it happen. If it was just some random video of Sudan, uh, you know, you could see that anywhere. It's a question of structure and the encounter between structure and the natural. Yeah. And as I'm thinking now, I'm thinking that the experience of your work, it's not just the process that you create where there's a relationship between structure and spontaneity. But it's for the viewer, too, that the viewer experiences that structure and in order to have that in-the-moment response to what's sure. going on, you know, which is, again, a point I missed. Yeah, it's about you know, the, but, you know, yeah. that surprise of knowing. It's about that wonderful mm -hmm. surprise well, are, of knowing. Right. Yeah, yeah. As you know, somebody makes a point in the book, uh, which I think is really brilliant, that make to know is not just for the the artist or the designer, it's also for the viewer or the client too, that we're, we're all going through that in parallel ways. Exactly. Kind of, it's a kind of yeah. understanding and understanding takes time. And both you're traveling through this journey, not only with Sudan, but with the artist too, who's looking and observing. And you're looking through the camera that I looked through. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's all, mm -hmm. it's all exposed and it's all of a piece. And if the exposure weren't there, the depth wouldn't be there. So if the superficiality exactly. weren't there, the things that exist on a deep level couldn't be there. So Diana, the relationship between deep preparation and, and spontaneity and being ready, as I, the, the readiness is all, is the, it seems to be the phrase I associate with you, taken from Hamlet, of course. I'm wondering if you could tell the story of Chernobyl and what happened with your, that little Leica camera. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you thought about the shot, but you had to be ready because exactly. it was there in a second. This, and, is the, yeah. this is, yeah. you know, this is the hardest thing about my work. So I went to see Chernobyl first for th about three days. I was there the first time. And when I was there, I wanted to get an idea. What am I going to film? How's it going to work? And what I was really interested in was the collapse of a technological system, of a political system, and of a natural system. I mean, they destroyed an ecosystem, right? And so what happens to that ecosystem after 25 years? When I made it, it was the 25th anniversary, I think, of Chernobyl. So I went on this go-see and I had a camera, but what I had in my hand was this little Leica that I just love. And it's just a little digital camera, but it shoots high def video. And the thing I wanted to film in Chernobyl the most were these wild horses. The last wild horses in the world are Przewalski's horses, and they are from Mongolia. And um, they're the last remaining wild horses. And there are, I'm not sure how many of them are. There are, they're an endangered species. Anyway, they live in Chernobyl. And I wanted to shoot video or film of these horses in the abandoned city. That was the image I had in my head. I always have this fantasy. Oh, I'm going to get this amazing image of a horse walking out of a doorway, you know? 
So <laughs> we went on the go-see and I just had my little Leica and we were driving through and all of a sudden there was a herd of horses in the middle of the city. And I knew I might never get this shot again. So I just pulled out my Leica and shot little HD video with this little tiny camera. <laughs> But it was, you have to be ready. I should have had a better camera in my hand. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I know. And I learn all the time. <laughs> Readiness, right? Right. That's it. Because you miss a moment. If you miss a moment, uh, you missed it. Right. You know. And for you, though, you also prepare deeply to make sure that that moment is the And yeah, you could have had a better camera, but you, you knew that yes, you had to exactly. act. Because you knew what you wanted, right? Yeah, I knew exactly what I wanted. And, and you have to follow your curiosity. You have to follow what's happening around you. That's why spontaneity is important because you need to act depending, you need to react to what you see. You know, it's not really, it's an active game, but it's also a reactive game. That's why I do so much research and I plan the cameras and the structure and the choreography because you have to be ready just in case something fantastic happens. Right, right. Just in case I get that moment, that thing that I really wanted. And it's so important. And I think that often the assumption uh, about make to know, which is completely wrong, is that, you know, you just kind of make it up as you go along. But that's not the case at all. It has nothing to do with that. In fact, it requires incredible preparation, experience, education, values, all of that. But that's the scaffolding we stand on as we reach into uncertainty and start creating in that space of uncertainty. Exactly. And, and you summed it up so beautifully in our interview where you said to, to me, you know, I find the thing that is there that I never planned to be there. And that's what the making process is for me. And that's the whole point of it. It sums it up so, so, so great. Yeah, that's really the point of my work is to set up something so that when something fascinating happens, I'm ready. And that fascinating thing might be a bird sitting on a branch, but it's fascinating to me and I will make it fascinating to you. <laughs> that's my challenge. Well said. Beautiful. So wonderful talking with you today, Diana. Thank you. Thanks for your insight and for your collegiality and your friendship. And it's just been a great joy. It's a pleasure, Lauren. It's wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. Change Lab is produced out of Art Center College of Design. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Lauren Mahoney, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Olin. Please take a moment to support us. You can do this by heading to Spotify or Apple Podcasts to rate and review our show. And while you're at it, Share us with someone who is curious about the creative process. That's it for this week on Change Lab.